This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 154. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, scientist by day, writer by night, and podcaster on the weekends. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here's this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 12 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Homicide detective Michael Pirelli and aspiring author Will Karenson are both trying to make their city a better place. In Chapter 1, Will joined Michael for a ride-along, and together they viewed the crime scene where a street-level homeless man had been found dead. At first, it appeared to be the result of a drug overdose, but when they examined the body, Michael and his partner discovered a pair of puncture wounds on the man's neck. Apparently, the man was the victim of a vampire attack. Michael's partner, Detective Bentley, ended any further examination of the crime scene. Vampire attacks are the responsibility of the Lightbringers, not local police. Reluctantly, Michael drew up the paperwork to transfer the case to Lothanasi headquarters. Shaken by what he saw, Will confided in his girlfriend, the runner Callie Linder. Will wants to write a book about the struggles of people on street level, in the hope that the city's wealthier citizens will read it and be moved to help them. Callie is deeply skeptical about any attempts to help her people, which are usually either misguided at best or exploitative at worst. The street's problems won't be solved by a naive college student writing a book. Still, Callie could see that Will needed to learn that firsthand, so she took him to speak to her mentor, the retired runner Silas Kenning. After talking to Will and being convinced of his sincerity, Silas agreed to put Will in touch with some people who were doing good work on the street and could use his help. If you do the work, he told Will, you'll understand the work. Will agreed to help however he can. Meanwhile, the vampire medical examiner Morgan Drowling has examined a series of bodies that came into her morgue, including the one found by Michael Pirelli. Morgan discovered a disturbing pattern, and after confirming her suspicions, she called Michael. Drop whatever you're doing and come down here right away, she said. I think we have a serial killer on our hands. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 12 Michael was already standing on the subway platform when he received Morgan's call. At first, he was irritated that anyone from work was calling him after he'd just spent a long, miserable day buried in paperwork. 
As soon as he heard Morgan utter the words serial killer, though, all thoughts of fatigue and irritation vanished. He nearly ran over a few fellow pedestrians on his way back to the express lift. He arrived at the FID office under Brightleaf General in less than ten minutes. The doors were locked, since it was after hours, but Morgan was waiting to let him in, and she quickly ushered him back into the exam room. Three bodies were laid out on the exam tables. One was the John Doe from the vampire attack in the alley. All three of these bodies came in as does, Morgan said. All three were dumped in sparsely habited areas of the street. All were labeled as vampire attacks. She crossed her arms, her expression grim. All of them were wrong. Michael's eyebrows went up. Your people missed something? Three times in a row? Morgan's lips compressed into a hard line. Oh, there's going to be some retraining at Squad 2. You can be damned sure of that. She beckoned Michael over to stand beside her in front of one of the does. Look at the neck. Look carefully. What don't you see? Michael got down close to the body. He adjusted the light, studying the two apparent fang wounds carefully. They seemed to have the right depth and spacing for vampire fangs. The shape of the puncture marks seemed consistent with a long, gently curving pair of canines. He pictured the scene in his mind's eye, imagining the vampire coming up behind the man, wrapping its arms around him, seizing the man's throat in its elongated jaws. Michael stopped, frowning. He peered closely at the wound. Then he turned the body's head to expose the other side of the neck. There are no other teeth marks, Michael said quietly. How could the vampire have held on long enough to inject the venom? It couldn't have, Morgan said simply. Michael shook his head in disbelief. How did we miss that? Because the mind sees what it expects to see, Morgan said. You see a few details that fit a story you already have in your head. The brain fills in the rest. Being a police detective doesn't make you immune to your own biology. Still, damn. Michael started looking over the rest of the body. The blood was drained somewhere else? Morgan nodded. Inside the leg, up near the groin. Michael thought back to his first aid training. The femoral artery. Exactly. Michael opened up the leg, saw the small puncture wound high on the inside, where it had been hidden by the man's scrotum. All three were the same M.O.? Down to the ligature marks on the arms and legs, Morgan agreed. Michael looked at the body's ankles. The skin had been rubbed raw with some kind of rope burn. He hadn't seen that in the alley, of course, because the man's clothes had been on, and they hadn't taken the time to examine him thoroughly. There was minimal blood at all three sites, Morgan said, tapping her fingers on a stack of reports. My examination of the bodies shows nearly complete blood drainage, between three and four liters for each victim. What blood did remain pooled in the lower legs. Michael pictured it. That means they weren't lying down. They had to have been suspended or elevated somehow. Maybe hung by their arms? Perhaps, Morgan said doubtfully. I would expect the shoulder joints to show more strain, though. More probably something like a St. Andreas cross. What's that? Michael asked. Morgan was silent for a long moment. 
Michael looked up at her questioningly. The vampire seemed frozen in a state halfway between amused and amazed. Oh, you lamb, Morgan said. Suppressed laughter strangled her voice. Michael glared at her. Are you going to tell me, or am I going to have to look it up on the world net? Morgan made a choking sound. <sniffs> oh, gods, <laughs> yes, please do that. And please have someone record you doing it. Uh, not at work, though. That told Michael about all he wanted to know about the subject. He let it drop. We're going to have to let Special Investigations know about this, he said quietly. Indeed. I'll draft a report and send it to SID on Monday. I'm hoping to get some further insights this weekend by talking to Kate. Kate and Magic Affairs? Michael nodded. That makes sense. Anyone draining that much blood is probably doing some kind of death magic. The question is what kind, Morgan said, and whether there are more than just these three. I can look into that, Michael said. We keep records of every case we forward to the Lothanasi. I'll go dig through the files tomorrow, look for more bodies that fit the M.O. If it's been going on for a while, some of the bodies may have been identified by their next of kin by now. That could help us put together a profile. Good thinking, Morgan said. I'll call you again once I've had a chance to talk to Kate. She showed him an apologetic smile. Sorry to make you come in on your day off. Don't be, Michael said. Chances are it's the only time Sergeant Hawkins wouldn't stop me. He clenched his fist and shook it in frustration. I knew there was more to these cases than we were getting. Deep down, I knew it. He looked up at Morgan and very nearly met her eyes before remembering why he shouldn't do that. He looked at her chin instead. Thank you for proving that I wasn't crazy. I can see why Kate speaks so highly of you. Morgan froze for an instant, then broke into a warm, sincere-looking smile. I could say the same of you, she said softly. She extended her arms, palms upward. Michael pushed aside his fear and placed his own arms atop hers. They wrapped their hands around each other's arms, just short of the elbow. Good hunting, she said. Michael nodded. You too. He left the morgue feeling a strange mixture of relief and dread. Dread because there was apparently a serial killer on the loose, and apparently he or she was some kind of death mage. But relief because here, finally, was the chance to do police work that mattered. Even if he had to pass the cases on to special investigations, any additional information he could dig up for them would be a real help in solving the case. And perhaps even more importantly than that, he wasn't on this mission alone anymore. The Atherton Street Community Kitchen was a rare thing in Callie's experience, a street-level project funded by topsiders that actually did some good. It was held in a neighborhood school that had been closed when the violence in the area had gotten too severe. The place had been abandoned for years before being purchased and cleaned up by the Hope Foundation. The building was already full of people when Callie and Will arrived in early evening. They filled long rows of folding tables in the gymnasium cum cafeteria, hundreds of men, women, and children from all over the street. Callie and Will bypassed the crowds and went around to the service entrance and back, 
where volunteers in white aprons worked non-stop, filling trays of food and carrying them out to the waiting patrons. A tall, burly cowmorph interposed herself between Callie and Will and the rest of the room. "'Can I help you?' she asked, with a quiet note of challenge that was ready to become something more. Callie bowed to the woman. Will copied her, a half-second behind. "'Silas said you could use some help,' Callie said. "'You must be Eloise.' The cowwoman's face broke into a warm and entirely unexpected smile. "'Oh, Silas,' she said fondly. "'Now there's a good man. "'And yes, I need bussers and food runners for the next four hours. "'You up for that?' "'Yes, ma'am,' Will said. "'All right.' She pointed at a wash station halfway down the wall. "'Get scrubbed and put on some aprons.' She raised her voice. "'Jenna, where are you?' A dark-haired young woman raised her hand somewhere in the middle of the kitchen. "'Over here, Eloise.' Eloise looked back at Callie and Will and gestured in Jenna's direction. Report to her when you're ready. She'll keep you busy. Cert, Callie said. Come on, Will. Jenna turned out to be part Daedra, with reddish-brown skin, striking amber eyes, and a pair of cute little goat's horns. Callie felt Will immediately start to get nervous when they got close to her, but she wasn't sure whether it was because of the girl's heritage or just because she was beautiful. Callie nudged him in the ribs to snap him out of it, introductions were made, and the two got to work. After about half an hour of running trays back and forth between kitchen and dining hall, Callie could see why Silas had chosen this place for Will. Whatever a person might think that street rats were like, the community kitchen would show them another side. There were swoopies and runners, mothers with children, grizzled ex-convicts, frail retirees, quiet teenage runaways. There were loud old men and women who laughed uproariously at each other's stories, and huddled groups of immigrants who spoke no common, but murmured softly with one another in their own tongues. Kelly noticed Will watching the people as he served them, listening in on snippets of their conversations, offering a remark of his own here and there. Kelly gave him some space, letting him speak for himself, and used the distance to keep an eye on how the other street rats were responding to him. To his credit, he did not seem to be making an ass of himself. For the first couple of hours, there was no time for extended conversations. After that, the pace of new arrivals tapered off, and the volunteers took trays of food for themselves. Eloise urged everyone to sit in the main cafeteria with the patrons, so Will went out to a table where Callie had seen him speaking to people earlier. She and Jenna went with him, taking two of the spots that had already been vacated by the early crowd. "'This your boy?' an older woman asked Callie, pointing to Will as they sat down across from her. "'I guess that's one way to describe him,' Callie said, playfully ruffling Will's hair. Will's goofy grin told Callie that he didn't mind too much. "'Such a nice young man,' the woman said. She inclined her head to each of them in turn. I'm Lorraine. Callie, Callie said. This is Will. I'm so glad you came to help, Lorraine said. Poor Eloise has been so short-staffed lately. We wouldn't be if people would show up for their shifts, Jenna said darkly. Bruce and Willa were supposed to be working all this week. Next time they show up wanting to eat, Eloise is going to rip them a new one. Are a lot of your volunteers from the street? Will asked. 
Yeah, most of us live down here, Jenna said. I'm one of the lucky ones. I've got a steady job that feeds me just fine. But a lot of the volunteers are patrons looking for a way to give back. She looked down at her tray and stabbed a piece of chicken with her fork. Until they flake out on us, she added sourly. Lorraine reached over to pat Jenna's hand. Don't be too hard on them, dear. The straight's gotten a lot more dangerous lately. They may not be able to get here. Will leaned in over the table, his eyes intent. Why is it more dangerous than it used to be? Well, I can't say as I know the reasons, Lorraine said. But there's so much more fighting than there used to be. There are so many guns, so many big guns, like the ones you used to only see soldiers carry. Now there are gang members strutting down the middle of the road with those awful things. She shook her head. You give an angry young man a weapon like that, he's going to find a reason to use it. Another woman sitting next to Lorraine chimed in. There's more bad magic out there, too. Just last week there was a fight in front of my building between two of those magic gangs, and the spells they used, well, you'd think it was a war zone out there. They must have sent a dozen people to the hospital, and not all of them were gangsters. Poor Richard Larkin got blown up in his own living room. Prophet, have mercy. It's these young new gangsters, you know. Back in my day, they used to have their elders who kept them in line. She turned to Will. I know you topsiders think the gangs are all bad, but you have to understand we didn't have anybody else to protect us. The police don't come down here unless there's already a dead body. The old gangsters, the elders, they would bring up the young ones to protect the neighborhood. So they would patrol and keep out the troublemakers from other parts of town. And if some monster crawled up from the tunnels and started hunting here, everybody would team up and hunt it down. She smiled wistfully. They were rough men, and if anyone disrespected them, they'd pay for it and quick. But they were part of the community. Will nodded soberly. What happened? The syndicate happened, Callie said quietly. The vampires. They decided the neighborhood gangs were too disorderly for the world they wanted to build down here. So they started recruiting gangs to join the outfit. The elders started disappearing, Lorraine's friend said. No one knew where they'd gone or why, but they weren't living in the neighborhoods anymore. And then all the young gangsters started wearing red. That was when you knew they'd gone over to the vampires, Lorraine agreed. They used to say, better red than dead. Sometimes I wonder if they were right. Some of the elders were turned, Callie said. They joined the vamps and became part of their organization. Others were made into ghouls, addicted to vampire blood. She shrugged. The ones that wouldn't submit were killed. You know your history, child, Lorraine said approvingly. Silas taught me, Callie said. She smiled fondly. He said you can't understand where you are if you don't know where you've been. Silas is a wise man, Lorraine's friend said. Mm-hmm, a guardian angel, Lorraine agreed. He reminds me a lot of the old community elders, actually. Except his community is everyone on the street. One thing I don't get, Jenna said. All the stuff you're talking about, it happened ages ago. Before me and Callie and Will were even born. So why is it getting worse now? Callie had seen enough clues in her recent missions to have a theory about that. There's someone else down here now. 
The vampires united most of the gangs into one big machine, one that served the syndicate instead of the neighborhoods. But some people don't like the way the Reds do things. For a long time, there wasn't much they could do about it. But now they're fighting back. And somebody's given them the weapons to do it. Jenna nodded slowly. That makes sense. Have you guys seen the new gang signs showing up? Oh, yes, Lorraine said, with a tone of sudden realization. The white ones that look like webs and spiders. I've seen some of those gangster boys wearing white, Lorraine's friend offered. I thought it was just a local thing. Will looked at Callie. You think it's all connected? That somebody's starting a new gang network to compete with the vampires? Wouldn't surprise me, Callie said. Her thoughts spun in dark circles, and she couldn't keep her grim feelings out of her voice. Topsiders never get involved down here unless they want something from us. Will looked down at his hands. I wouldn't say never, he muttered. Jenna was looking worried now. If somebody's trying to start a turf war with the Reds, things are going to get really ugly really fast. It's bad enough when two local gangs are beefing with each other. If the whole street gets caught up in it, what are folks like us going to do? Sleep in the bathtub if you're smart, Callie said. She was getting an unsettling feeling in the pit of her stomach. Jenna, have you sent anybody to check on your missing folks? Uh, no, I don't think so, Jenna said. A lot of us don't have skimmers, and Eloise doesn't have the time. And it's dangerous to go into someone else's neighborhood uninvited. I've got a swoop, Callie offered. And I'm a licensed runner, so the gangs don't care about me crossing borders. Give me the addresses for whoever hasn't been showing up. Will and I can do some quick house calls, make sure they're okay. Jenna looked stunned. Wow, really? That would be amazing. She laughed, a little nervously. <laughs> I've never heard of a runner working for free. Callie smiled wryly. Yeah, well, don't spread it around. I've got a reputation to maintain. She looked back at Lorraine. But hey, we gotta look out for each other, right? Not like anyone topside gives a damn about street rats. Will glowered down at his plate. Then he whispered, so softly that only Callie could hear it. Not yet. And that's the end of Chapter 12. Come back next time for Chapter 13, when Morgan comes home to find an unexpected visitor. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,128 words this week, over the course of 3.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 608 words per hour. I wrote on three out of seven days this week, and spent another five and a half hours working on recording and audio editing. I continued working on Operation Ibex this week. The story feels like it's starting to gain traction again. This week I logged my biggest one-day word count since the end of January. As always, the challenge is balancing time between my writing, my work life, and my personal life. That was doubly difficult this week, because I ended up working overtime on four out of five days, plus going in for a couple hours of weekend work on Saturday. I'm still really enjoying my job, but I'm also looking forward to when things calm down a little bit. 
I'm also looking forward to July 4th through 11th, when I'll be visiting Toronto. As I've mentioned previously, I'm going to see Katie Brisky's new play, Six Stories Told at Night. The show opens on the night of July 5th and runs through July 15th as part of the Toronto Fringe Festival. Tickets are super affordable, and you can get them at fringetoronto.com. You can learn more about the show and Katie's theatre company at gangwaytheatre.com. That's R-E, the Canadian way. If you're going to be in Toronto at any time during the 4th through the 11th, let me know if you'd like to meet up. I would love to connect with some of my listeners while I'm there. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester. Signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.